There we come into a situation where there's data available and where some people wonder how they can work with this data and how they can find graphic representations to make it easier to use these data and to reason with them and make decisions with them. everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. My name is Moritz Stefana and I'm an independent designer of data visualizations. And in fact, I work as a self-employed truth and beauty operator out of my office here in the countryside in the north of Germany. And I am Enrico Bertini. I am a professor at NYU in New York City, where I do research and teach data visualization. Right. And on this podcast, we talk about data visualization, but also data analysis and generally the role data plays in our lives. And usually we do that together with the guests we invite on the show. But before we start, a quick note. Our podcast is listener supported, so there are no ads. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us with recurring payments on patreon.com slash data stories. Or you can also send us a one-time donation on PayPal going to paypal.me slash data stories. That's right. It's always lovely when, when we receive a little donation or a, a new contribution. And if you can't, that's fine too. But maybe then oh, consider yeah. supporting us on social media. Why not retweet one of our tweets or point out your favorite episodes? There's, there's many ways you can help us keep the show running <laughs> and, and growing. Uh, anyways, let's get started. The topic today is one that we had on the list for a very long time. In fact, I oh, think yeah. we never really covered it, although it's such <laughs> such a fascinating uh, topic to talk about. We talk so much about the, the present and the future of data visualization, but we really never looked into the past. And there's this huge and rich history. Uh, we're really standing on the shoulders of giants, obviously. And um, today we have a guest who is very knowledgeable about the history of information graphics and data visualization. And I'm really glad she can join us today. Welcome, Sandra Rentgen. Welcome, Sandra. Thank you. Hi, Sandra. Great to have you here. Can you tell us a bit about your background and what you're currently doing? Yes, uh, I'm very happy to be uh, joining today and uh, I'm, I'm an independent author and uh, concept developer. I live in Berlin and uh, like my academical background is in art history and uh, cultural theory. Um, but I specialized at some point at, uh, in data visualization and information graphics. And I did that by writing two books about like the contemporary work, uh, like trying to watch what's happening in the field. And, um, that, those books came out like a few years ago. But then, uh, since I have this background as a historian, I really wanted to look into the history because I felt like there's a, there's a lack of knowledge, uh, and, uh, but also, uh, a very, uh, there's a lot of people who really crave knowledge about it. Like I, f I see there's a lot of tweets and, and blog posts about interesting works. And so I felt like there's, there's a need of a lack of knowledge and a need for literature. And so I dived into the history for, yeah, for, for the past few years, actually. And uh, yeah, I've uh, written two books that are just coming out or just have come out. Uh, one is um, specializing on 
yeah, one of the most important forefathers, like everyone's heard the name before, and that is Charles Joseph Minard. And most people uh, know his very famous uh, Napoleon graph, uh, graphic, uh, which is very important in the history. But he's done so much more, and all this work of his was uh, buried in an archive in Paris, and so I felt like there's a real need to get that out and show it to the world, like how has his work evolved, how did he come up with doing this graphic. And the other work that I'm, I've been working on for the past years is uh, a more broader overview of the history of information graphics, and that has just come out. Yeah, and this one's called The History of Information Graphics in Taschen Verlag, right? Mm -hmm. which, is, which is really a wonderful book. Uh, that also, you, you've been an editor and it features contributions from, from a few people, right? Yes, exactly. Like, um, the, I have uh, set up the concept with my editor at Taschen, Julius Wiedemann, but we decided we needed some more contributions to that. And uh, we invited uh, four people who are um, really experts in the field and who have like collected and written upon work uh, for several years or many years, in fact, and um, and that's David Rumsey, who is well known as a as a collector of historical maps. That is Michael Friendly, who is a statistician and and a psychologist from Canada, and he's written a lot about the the history of data visualization, specifically like uh, numerical thinking. And then we have Michael Stoll, who is a designer and professor here in Germany, and he's been collecting uh, historical infographics for a very long time. He has an incredible collection of, of printed work. And then we also have Scott Klein in the book, who is a journalist in um, in the United States, and he has collected a very specific uh, strand of historical infographics, and that is uh, infographics from newspapers, which is very, very, a very cool contribution because it's it's um, difficult to research and sort of ephemeral, in that newspapers are not that well collected and, and preserved, and so uh, he contributed a chapter on that. Great, yeah, and I mean this. This both books are really gorgeous. So uh, make sure to check them out when you see them in a in a bookstore or something. They're huge as well. I, I love these these big format coffee table type books, and these ones also have great commentary. So history of information graphics, huge topic. You know, everything starts probably with the cave paintings as usual, and you know, there's a lot of <laughs> yeah. early yeah. maps. But just to reduce the scope a bit, I think. Yeah. What would you say, Sandra? When 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 should we start a quick overview? Of, of the the whole history. So yeah, that's always difficult to say because we do have very early works, right? We have the cave paintings. We have a very early like metal shield uh, that was excavated here in Germany that shows constellations mm -hmm. of, of stars and things like that. And we have very early like stone maps from Babylon. And um, but it's very difficult where to exactly start. I mean, all these works uh, apparently uh, do encode information visually. Um, I have decided to go a little uh, to go a little forward. And, and start at the moment in time where we actually have like a, a, a very full body of work that has come down to us, right? And that is starting around the year 800 in Europe, uh, in the European Middle Ages. Uh, and from that moment in time, we have a lot of works coming up, like a lot of parchment rolls, a lot of codices, um, and a lot of books uh, that are still preserved. And that, uh, like before that, 
we do have works, but they are single works, and it's very difficult to, you know, to set up the connections. And from the Middle Ages on, we can sort of uh, observe a real culture, like a like a culture of texts, a culture of books. But the diagrams and maps do play a very important role in that. And uh, that's where I started, and uh, it's really nice to see that because there's so much in the archives and. Um, I also have to say that the the just a practical aspect is that the the digitization of archives in the last few years has played uh, like a crucial role because I couldn't have done this if not the archives had all digitized their content and put it online. So that makes it really you know all these treasures that are hidden there are now coming to light and you can see them online, find them online. And uh, so th there's a whole wealth of stuff that's popping up and 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 becoming visible now. And so yes, that's sort of the first um, epoch that I came up with and that I started with. And um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of theological stuff going on, a lot of like Christian theology explaining Christian faith, and the, the, there's very difficult um, theological you know, debates and, and mm -hmm. uh, mm. discussions. And those are often um, supported by very elaborate, large-scale diagrams. Uh, but also there's a lot of astrological and astronomical stuff, like, you know, stars, constellations. And, uh, and also an interesting topic that is very strange to me today, and that is calendar calculations for the mm -hmm. date of Easter. And those uh, produced a lot of uh, intricate graphics as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and looking at the examples you have there, so on your website, we'll link that there's an excerpt from the book with, with a few of the Middle Ages uh, examples. It struck me that it's not really numbers based, right? It's much more like conceptual structure exactly or, exactly mm, and that's right? super interesting because what these diagrams do is is they they take an order that they perceive like the authors right they perceive some structure or they perceive some order in the universe in the constellation of the stars and or in you know this the structure of the concepts of christian faith and they take this order and give it a visual structure they put they, mm -hmm. they put this order onto paper and this is something that they don't see it's not like something they actually observe in reality but they you know it's an intellectual concept and they give it a visual structure and put it on the page and what is also really thrilling for us in in this medieval work uh something that i have a hard time to, to wrap my head around it's a manuscript culture everything is hand painted there's everything mm -hmm. is unique there's there's no copy there's no other thing if one thing gets lost it's lost forever and so mm -hmm. what these um what uh, medieval culture is about is like preserving knowledge because it's so precious, right? It can get lost at any point in time. And so they keep copying things, like it's copied again and again and again. So mm -hmm. you have specific mm -hmm. schemes that pop up again and again. But every time they copy it, they make a little amendment to it or they customize it a little bit as to fit with other writings and stuff. And that's also really fascinating that everything is unique, but then everything is a little different. And yeah. uh, that's very hard to imagine today. We're so used to to printed stuff and now to digital stuff, and and that everything is just you know a one hand painted thing that you know by chance has survived is really thrilling for me. Sandra, do, do we know anything about the actual craft of how these these diagrams would actually be painted? 
Um, I mean, what kind of material they would use? Yes, absolutely. Would, yeah. um, I'm. I have to say, I'm not uh, uh, an expert in the in the material uh, in the, the material background of this. But you know, mm -hmm. one mm -hmm. thing that is certain is that most um, the material they drew upon or painted upon was parchment. I mean, that is what the books were made of parchment. We have a lot of parchment rolls as well. Like some were hung on the wall. Some rolls were like really large things sometimes in in several segments but then you have rolls of like they're 30 uh, 30 centimeters high and then something like seven meters long or something like incredible um wide formats and then they would roll that as to transport it we have uh, for instance a, a a road map that is rolled and then you put it in your backpack and um so they would most of the times they would work on parchment and then they would use ink and watercolors most of the time yeah I just have to think of our episode with Eva Lotterlam because some of these early works remind me of sketch notes. <laughs> exactly. You know, with the, with the right, tight integration yeah. of typography and imagery and this mm -hmm. whole like creating structure and preserve it on paper for, you know. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Like preserving yeah. knowledge. So I, mm -hmm. I, I never saw that connection before, but now I Yeah, but it's, a, it's an interesting it's part. It's quite yeah, close it's true. together, actually. Yeah, yeah very much so. Yeah. And um, and it's it's a very I was I was thrilled to dive into this medieval universe because it's so far away from us uh, or, or so remote for us uh, both the knowledge that is in there preserved in there but also the um, the, the the material stuff and the, and the aesthetics it looks so different from us but also um, what is interesting if you look at the this, this very old stuff for me is it 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 makes us it makes clear that there's hardly anything like a universal infographic, if you know what I mean. It's not, mm. you always need to know something about the context. And, mm -hmm. the, the, mm. you know, the, you can read them and you can, you know, dive into it. If you, if you learn to read the script and if you learn to read, if you learn to understand Latin and all these things, you can read what's going on there. And then you have to understand something about theology or about astronomy. And, you know, you can, but it's not like you can easily just look at it and check it it's you really have to know something about it and i think that's very important for us today um because i feel like there's still something like this myth of you know if we only encode information well enough then everybody will be able to read it and <laughs> yeah. to me that seems to be a myth that is a little bit naive and i feel like you know studying these old things may help us in overcoming that a little bit mm -hmm. i should hope yeah 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 and i think and maybe another another interesting observation is that there are some type of structures graphical structures that keep recurring over mm -hmm. the years right so i think ultimately if you look at quote unquote modern visualization we still keep using the same metaphors mm -hmm. and structures right so i'm thinking about here in the preview that you have on your website i can see circles with mm -hmm elements arranged around the circle yeah. or I can see a tree yeah right trees are always there yeah. hierarchical structure mm -hmm. nested components mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it's really like <laughs> we didn't really invent anything and I think I think what is interesting is also why do we why do we keep coming back to these structures, right? <laughs> it, uh, that's a very interesting question. Um, uh, but I think some things are 
pretty simple and straightforward and, you know, yeah. works so well and effectively that we just, you know, keep recurring or coming back to them. Such as you said, like, you know, in a genealogy, you have circles and then lines that, you know, connect the circle somehow or in a network. But then also, on the other hand, the, 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 the history of the tree is very important because um, the first... Like the, the tree sort of evolved from something else. The tree, uh, in, in my medieval chapter, there, there are a few very intricate, uh, charts that show, uh, relations, but like within families. It's, it's, it's a topic from Roman law and both in Roman law for, for, um, questions of inheritance, but also uh, in the Christian church in the Middle Ages, it was very important to understand how is someone related to you? You know, how many steps are between you and that person? Are you really related or are you far enough mm. to get married, for instance? And so, and there's a lot of charts like that. And, and most of them, the early ones are geometric. And at some point, they become a sort of tree-like structure with a, with a trunk uh, below and then sort of a, you know, triangle on top. And then at some point through the Middle Ages, this sort of, you know, takes on the idea of the tree. It becomes something floral, but it hasn't been mm -hmm. a tree in the first place, if you know what mm -hmm. I mean. So this mm -hmm. metaphor then at some point becomes a dynamic of its own. Mm -hmm. And it's not like it's... And in it's, German, the word is Stammbaum. So Stammbaum, it, it exactly. refers to the actual tree again. Yeah, right? it does. Uh, uh, twice, because uh, it the does. trunk tree. Yeah, basically. it does, but it has evolved <laughs> over centuries, you know, and it's not like it, it, is, it has always been the tree. And if you look, if you know that, and if you look at uh, genealogies or, or Stammbäume or trees, you know, uh, through the centuries, you can see how this metaphor not always really matches what is being shown and how it sometimes has you know weird problems like the tree is uh you know uh bottom uh, it's, up it's or you the, know it's uh, all the noble houses like marrying each other that yeah, leads to yeah. certain confusion in the yeah tree, exactly right? and not <laughs> not always well the structure of the family matches your cousin the, but yeah, also your uncle matched the structure uh, of the tree and so that that's also an interesting so yes uh, to come back to your question rico some things are Uh, straightforward and works so well and that goes specifically for um, taking a structure like a structure a mental structure so to say and creating a visual order to represent that structure and for that most of the time you just need simple graphical elements Most of the time, simple graphical elements will work well for putting things on paper, placing it on paper so it makes the structure and then connecting them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But other things are more complicated, like the whole tree thing that I just uh, <laughs> tried to <Yeah>. sketch. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so you said, so in the Middle Ages, there is a proliferation of these diagrams, mostly for theological diagrams mm -hmm. and, and astronomical diagrams. Mm -hmm. So what what happens next? Where, where would you place the next milestone? Yeah, I mean, there's, it's, it's a very, uh, there's something I need to say in between is uh, one thing that thrilled me during the work was um, how much there is. I mean, at first <laughs> I was like, okay, are you gonna, are you gonna find enough material for, for a big book like that about the history? Mm. I wasn't sure. And then I started and then I was like confident, okay, this is going to make a big book. And then I, I researched some more and re <laughs> it's, it's like, it's, it's on end. Like there's no, it's, there's no, yeah, it's it, endless. I could yeah. have done five books like that. It's, 
there's so mm. much work out there. It's thrilling because there's so much more to do and so much for us to discover that's really interesting. But if we take the grand, you know, the grand view upon the, the centuries behind us, the next really big thing is the development of scientific cartography. So we have the age of discovery beginning oh, in the yeah. early 1400s uh, up to 1500. And you all know that European powers sent out their, you know, seafarers to to conquer to to explore and conquer you know the world basically and the more they did that the more it was important for you know for politicians at home to have maps because maps maps really were access to power maps were knowledge and um, in the middle ages they had hardly any scientific idea about what the world really looked like and that changed very quickly and very profoundly from 1500 on um, so the cartographers based in Europe would take information brought back from the log books and, and the seafarers and would try to include that into maps and, and they would really proceed very well and very quickly in how to project the world, how to project the surface of the earth onto the flat screen. But also, you know, what do the continents look like? Where is Island X and is California an island or not? Things like that. And that's a very important development and, and for me a very interesting and fascinating development because there was so much work to be done and, and it was done very profoundly and quickly and then I would say around 1700, 1750, uh, we have such a high and elaborate culture of cartography in Europe and mm -hmm. then later in the U.S., of course. Uh, and that's really fascinating. It's both scientifically very highly uh, developed, but it's also in terms of graphical refinery. It's a, there's, I mean, it, there's no wonder people are collecting historical maps. There's so much graphic refinement in them. That's also a fascinating mm -hmm. aspect. And, and that, yeah, that takes place some, like, yeah, it takes around 250 years. And, um, and, I mean, it's it's what we're still working with, right? It's 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 building. A, they've built a base of knowledge that we still build upon today. Yeah, yeah, but that's really fascinating that these conceptual diagrams, on the one hand, but then also cartography, are really at the at the basis of what we do, and totally the whole idea of displaying numbers or statistical, you know, mm -hmm. uh, data yeah. comes in uh, much later, right? Yeah, um, that's when when can we point that uh, when that came into yes, the game like absolutely. that a data set is being actually shown. absolutely i mean it's 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 hard to say like one you know yeah. there's a one day astronomical like sun uh, measurements are data as well right so the, yeah, yeah that's true but but the idea to um i think this whole thing started with you know counting births and deaths and, you know, mm -hmm. other related demographic dat data. Right. And that, I mean, the early things start on a very local level, like in the parishes, um, you know, priests would count, you know, they're basically they're, they're people. And, yeah. um, and then they would um, collect tables and, you know, note down month of June, so many died, so many were born and stuff. So this is the very, and that we have like from the 1650s, 70s on. And then this whole uh, practice evolves until the late 1700s. And so in the late 1700s, we have a situation where there's a, some uh, politicians that think, you know, we need a more modern administration 
administration of, of political entities, of, of states, mm. of kingdoms, basically. And they try to make use of this demographic data. And that's, and also, not just demographic data, but also economical data, like a power of, you know, how much how much trade did we have with this country or that country? And, you know, so... so is that the beginning of the smart city? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, yeah. well uh, first, it's the beginning of the observed city, I would say, or the observed yeah, yeah. Uh, community. And then, right. uh, so... Around 1800, we have a situation uh, where there's data sets available, right? So um, Playfair, for instance, um, he has uh, published his, his seminal book, the, the Atlas of Political, the Commercial and Political Atlas, in 1786. And he's at the very forefront of this. There's several others, but um, so... There we come into a situation where there's data available and where some people, interestingly enough, mostly people who are not, you know, very well established in, in the classic academic circles, but like, you know, outsiders, people who are busy with other things. Um, and they start to wonder how they can work with this data and how they can, you know, find graphic representations to make to make the, 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 the ease of use, yeah, to, mm. to make it easier to use these data and to, to reason with them and make decisions with them. And, um, so yeah, Playfair is there. Um, there's a guy named, uh, Friedrich August Wilhelm Krome in Germany, but there's several other figures as well. And then, uh, in, in the 1820s, uh, that starts in France where people are actually setting up the first statistical maps. And this is a whole new, a way of thinking and a way of, you know, to understand society and what's going on in society and uh, with statistical numbers and to to take these numbers as a tool, as something that helps you, you know, rule a community, for instance, or rule a state or better the economic situations. Um, that is only coming up around 1800, as I just sketched and... Um, and, you know, but it's, it's only the beginning. We're always talking about, you know, decades long developments. Um, and through the early 1800s, statistics are really establishing, are really established as a science also. They, at first they had to fight for their, um, yeah, for their reputation as a science too. Mm -hmm. So graphical representations for statistics have been always there when when statistics was invented, basically. Sort of, yeah. The the, the first the first things came up very early, uh, the, and it's it's always that's also interesting that it's it's specifical figures, right, that are trying to to understand what can we do with this data, what can we do with that, and um, and are, it's it's always self initiated work, like uh, sort of self-initiated research projects. Um, uh, for instance, Charles-Joseph Minard is a very um, pr interesting proponent of that. Like, he didn't have to do this. Like, nobody would do this as, as a normal practice of, the, of his work. But um, when he was retired, he started to do these, like, it was almost like his statistical maps were almost like research projects. So he was like, can I try to find something out about the relation between our classical river and, and channel navigation and, uh, and the amount of transport that is being transported on the railway? Right? Can I yeah. can I compare this? Can I find out something about it uh, by setting up this map? And so he yeah. did. Yeah. He just he just kept iterating that and kept coming up with new questions, new uh, ideas. And so 
And what is interesting to see, if, if you follow the whole work, is how he evolved the body of knowledge, right, that people then used for new projects and other projects. Yeah, and I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, so from the technological standpoint, at this point in history, there's not a lot of progress in terms of tools to create these graphics, or am I wrong? I mean, I guess it's still using some some drawing tools and, and paper or or maybe I'm mistaken. Yeah, well we are in a, in a absolute in an absolutely thrilling moment in time because like graphically seen we may still be using some of the basic forms that have been mm -hmm. developed like 200 years ago or 150 years ago. But First of all, we know so much more about them. I mean, the, these old things, some, there's some graphics that are really, that look totally mind blowing and fascinating and they're popping up and have many colors and many items and many, uh, symbols on them. But then again, uh, they don't work so well, right? Because they're mm. cluttered and overloaded. And, and mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. what all this history has helped build is, is a knowledge of what is best practice, what works, what doesn't work. And we also, we have very advanced, we have, we have advanced a lot in uh, perception research, for instance, and in visualization research and user research, like what does work and what doesn't. And, um, it's been important to build up this knowledge, but it's also like the whole visualization research that has happened over the past 20 years, I would say, has contributed a lot more of what we know. And now what is the challenge is that, and the interesting challenge is all these new tools and all these digital technologies, and that helps us to build like a lot more complex works. But we don't know how this works yet. You know, mm. we're, we're trying. And um, so it's not like we haven't done anything new. It's it's more like we're facing, you know, we're, we're facing so many more opportunities now that we're trying to take this knowledge that we have from the past and, and the graphic, you know, symbols and, and, and the ideas and trying to make something new with that. Yeah. But just as a general observation, like if you have never looked into the 19th century's graphics, do it now because <laughs> mm -hmm. there's so much... Uh, inspiration you can draw from that and a lot of the things you can where you will think oh that's such a cool new d3 you mm -hmm. know <laughs> trick i've seen or yeah. this totally mind-blowing new style of display graphic probably somebody in the 19th century has done it already and has done it really well <laughs> it's it's so amazing yeah. <laughs> all kinds of like statistical maps tree maps all kinds of crazy mixing illustrations with statistical data there has been so like it, it seems like such a such a creative time uh, of how people have have worked with data right? yeah it's a very a very rich time also in the and at a, a very exper like people experimented a lot so a lot of that and i tried to include that in the book a lot of that was also you know weird or doesn't work or is just from our knowledge today is just you, you wouldn't do that anymore but still it's it's very as moritz just said it's very interesting because there's so much to discover right so many ideas and so many you know um, new approaches basically um, but what is also a very interesting point that I want to come back to, I mentioned it for the Middle Ages, but what we need to keep in mind is, I mean, we're all so used to working in the digital digital space. And and just to 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 keep in mind how all the works in the 19th century were graphics, 
or hand-painted things, but most of them graphics. They were printed. They were, they were happening on paper. They were, um, you know, they, they used a specific color. Many of them were hand-painted. I just, I, I don't know how this worked. How, they printed a hundred maps and then every single one of them was hand-painted. I don't even know how, who did all this work, but, um, <laughs> But also these yeah. printed maps, many of them are um, in a very large format. And then they have very intricate graphical details. And that's just so interesting to look at that also, because uh, what these broadsheet maps do is they, they, you know, it's, we always talk about overview and details on demand. And they are masterful examples of that because you have the whole format. You, you can see a lot of space in that map, but then you go in and it has a very high resolution and it's finely, you know, delicately uh, printed. So um, that's very, I mean, I don't know if we can do something with that knowledge today because we're building, you know, digital tools, most of us, but um, it's still very interesting to have that in mind and, and to also to appreciate it because we used to think, well, you know, old stuff, uh, okay, didn't have the tools we have, but they did something with those tools. That's really fascinating. So uh, I would say, since you have all this knowledge about what what has happened in the past in this space, what what do you think are the most surprising or insightful um, graphical solution that you've seen out there? Is there anything that stands out, or maybe even trends? Or oh, that's an interesting question. What I really like to think about is that there's um, things that are, you know, sort of. In, in the, the used in situations, you know, we always tend to think about um, data visualization as something that happens on a page or in a book or, you know, as, but I really like the works that are used, you know, in their hands. They take them, they take them somewhere, they put them up on the wall and then point there and use them as teaching aids or something. Mm. Or this one uh, medieval map that I just, uh, that I mentioned earlier, which is a very wide roll. And then you roll it together and then you put the roll into your backpack and take it. And then, you know, the next road, you, you take it out again. And so things that are actually, or there's a very large scale atlas that was given to the King of England at some point in the 17th century. That's like the, the high point of what I described earlier with the scientific uh, cartography. It's like huge, like a, a book of wall maps. I don't even really know how that works, you know, and, and these things are uh, nice for me to keep in mind because still today, you know, today we're not thinking about books anymore, but today we're thinking, we're very much thinking about, okay, the, the classical digital things, web-based tools, apps, you know, these um that at first look flat, but then, you know, maybe have filters or 3D uh, things even. But what about data visualization or information visualization that is, you know, in the, in in our environment, that is in, in our rooms, that is, you know, in the air? I don't know. But, you know, things yeah. that we actually, that, that sort of, help help us navigate the, the the space or something yeah yeah and seeing the physical dimension of these pieces is often yeah mm -hmm. very revealing because we always get it presented when we see it digitally in the same size but they can can be huge or, or yes. very tiny yes like i 
Yeah, so I sort of pictured also Charles Minard's map of the, the march against yeah. um, Moscow from Napoleon's troops as a huge piece, but yeah. <laughs> I think it's actually not so big. Oh, it is. It is. Uh, it's, it's not crazy big, but it is um, biggish. At least yeah. Biggish, yeah, sort of. <laughs> I, I, I don't have the exact measures now, but it's something yeah. like 70 centimeters or something. So you, you need yeah, to okay, spread out your decent. arms. Yeah. Yeah, and. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, that's uh, that. That's something that I love about the all these different pieces, all of them, um, uh, all of them in the history of information graphics. The, every single one is different, also in terms of uh, context of use. Uh, why did they do that? Why did they create it? And how was it used later on? And uh, to to take these things out of the digital realm and like sort of bring them back into our you know, in her physical space also. Mm. Just, I mean, we can't actually do this because the works uh, themselves are in the archives, but just like as a mental operation to understand visualization, works of visualization as something that we can hold in our hands and that we can work with that make yeah. us operate you know, yeah. our daily yeah. lives. And I mean, we live in a much more standardized world by now, right? And so the whole industrialization of everything, like, or for instance, like print has certain formats, right? Or yeah. uh, our computer screens have certain formats. In yeah. the, and in the pre-industrial area, anything was just a convention. But I think we, we, we have now much stronger standards in terms of what's what seems even like a good idea or what is even available to work with yeah right? i mean that's that's also the the interesting situation because the 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 conventions of the digital realm are not yet set i would say mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. we can you know we're all working we change them. yeah <laughs> we're we're all working on 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 setting them basically and that's also right. really interesting to see but um it's not like there haven't been any conventions in the past but you can watch conventions change through the epochs and as i right. said earlier it's just so it's just so mind blowing and and opening your horizon to go back and try to figure what were the conventions in the middle ages or in the early renaissance or something and why were they like that you know what were the tools and what would people use the things for and that you know i just i would just hope that trying to make this operation mentally um will help readers uh, to Yeah, to get a broader perspective on our, uh, on their daily work, on, on the mm -hmm. work that we are doing now. Because everyone's always, as you said in the beginning, everyone's focused towards the future, right? We're thinking from now. Now is our starting point and we're trying to look into the future. Um, but you know, going back also gives us ideas and, um, also has really mind blowing things installed that may, yeah, may give ideas and may open up the space for, experimentation yeah yeah it, it just occurred to me that as you were talking about the context of use i know next to nothing about how these statistical graphics would actually be used say pieces from playfair and minard um were they shown somewhere were they hanging on a wall or <laughs> I, i just don't know anything about that that's a super interesting <laughs> question so um And it's very important to think about that, I think, 
Playfair was a very interesting figure. He was just a self-employed, um, roaming nomad, sort of. He had a variety of jobs, but he was um, he was not in academia, but he was sort of uh, ambitious. And he had this idea about graphic representation. So he would get together several books over a few decades. but um, And so he would publish these books and just sort of hope that they sell. And mm. I don't actually know how they sold uh, and whether he made any money with them. And um, he did have, you know, he did a few talks in scientific circles. He traveled to Paris and presented at the Academy of Science. So a few people knew about his work. And some some small circles of, of, of scientists uh, were aware of that. So Minar later also refers to him. So, you know, not not a wide public, but a few people know, knew about his work in books. And in books, okay. In books. I and was not even aware that 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 these pieces were collected in a book yeah. or in books. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in books, right. in, okay, in yeah. several yeah. books, but in books. Okay. And then yeah. uh, Minar. So there are multiple copies then. Multiple as uh, multiple books, and then of the yeah, books, one, multiple yeah. copies. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then, and, but again, printed graphics, hand colored. Mm. I don't get ha. it how it worked. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, th yeah. I think that it was ha. child labor, basically. They had young girls sitting there wow. doing that. <laughs> Anyways, Minar, um, so Minar would do his work when he was retired, um, self-initiated. He had a network of, of like-minded scientists and engineers in Paris because he had a long career. And uh, he also had good connections to the Department of Public Works in Paris. And so he would... He would print these large format maps uh, as lithographs, and then again, they were most of them were hand painted. I don't know if he did that himself or whether he had, you know, a team of students, whoever, doing that. And then I don't know how many he printed, and also I don't really know how he circulated them. It's it's still sort of a secret. Um, I know that he had several sort of uh, people that regularly obtained his maps in the Department of Public Works. And then he also sent it to colleagues and to friends and so, but it was a sort of informal, I, I sort of self-distribute my work. Mm -hmm. um, and Etsy style. Yeah, sort of, <laughs> sort of. Uh, I, I don't think he sold them, actually. I think he yeah. just, uh, maybe the Department of Public Works paid for it, you know, a little bit. But mm. And so, yeah, these maps were flying around and uh, some of them were kept, well kept and well preserved. So just recently, a few, like two collections uh, preserved from French engineers have appeared on the market and were now sold. But most of them have just perished. Um, there's just really few copies that have survived but i mean i don't know because it's large-scale maps but they weren't really as refined and chic that people would actually you know hang them on the wall hang them on the mm -hmm. wall so mm. yeah so they were also not perceived as let's say artworks but exactly more yeah, exactly, exactly. And, um, and that's like, a very 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 uh, important point um yeah. Also because, I mean, he also didn't, you know, he didn't do much to refine them or to, to decorate them. That wasn't right. important to him. And that's yeah. why, which is also interesting, that's why they have this very clear modern style and aesthetics. Like we tend to think, oh, this is cool. This is almost Bauhaus-ish um, because it's so reduced and there's just, you know, just what you need in them, no extra decoration or something. Uh, but I think it's just because he was an engineer. He was a technical guy. So he would put in there what was necessary like you know the map and the legend and the text and that was it right. 
Yeah. Super interesting. Yeah. I th now I think oh, now we're at the end of the 19th century. We should do something about the 20th century. <laughs> yes. When, like, yes. Yeah. Where, where t things take a whole other turn. But I mean, uh, we won't cover that in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> a lot, a lot going on. Interesting things. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think but we've covered the, the the very very big things we need to know is yeah, yeah covered cartography and statistical reasoning because that's the bread and butter of what we work with today. Yeah. Yeah, and if you want to learn more, look into Sandra's books, uh, Tufti's books, of course. We can put a few links mm -hmm. there. Manuel Lima has two great books mm -hmm. on, oh, yeah. on specifically on circles and trees. You know, the, like just looking at it from a formal side, like mm -hmm. all these eternal like structures we mentioned before. And so it's definitely yeah. And again, it's something we can just infinitely draw inspiration from, and <laughs> and. And, and really, really learn about how our whole field has developed. And I think that's great. Yeah. And yeah, and actually we have a last thing to talk about because uh, <laughs> sort of unrelated, but uh, <laughs> somewhat coincidentally, Sandra is now also uh, our producer for Data Stories. So you might hear from her more often <laughs> or at least to hear work because she was help us with uh, producing the show, which is great. Yes, that is great news also for me. I was very happy that we came together in this uh, because yeah. I've been a fan and a listener for a long time. And so um, it's great for me to contribute to the show and hope uh, I can help make it run and uh, make it grow. Yeah, that's really cool. And it's, yeah. Thanks for taking me on board. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> pleasure. And yeah, uh, Sandra is filling in for Destry, who who did a fantastic job uh, over the last few years. Some of you might know her, maybe from that one hundredth episode. Yeah, and uh, yeah, she had now her first baby, and so uh, she takes time for that. And so we're super happy both for having had such great support, but also having Sandra now helping us, which is great. Yes, hi, dear listeners. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, that's also an opportunity we might sort of rethink some of our approaches. So if you listeners have a few ideas in terms of what you would like to hear more or different formats or different output channels, I don't know, just let us know because right now we're sort of also re reworking our process a bit. So it's a good time to send in suggestions. That's, I guess, what I'm saying. <laughs> and it's summer as well. <laughs> yeah, true. So <laughs> we're open for anything. Good time for yeah. thinking. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Wonderful. That that has been fascinating. Uh, it's a pleasure also to really browse through the books and um, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's like uh, it's 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 a special situation for me because I feel like there's not have been enough emphasis uh, and knowledge on that. So yeah, thanks. That's for true. And we should cover that. it more. Yeah. I think uh, that's that's also true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but we made the first step. Looking back, so yeah, that's something. Exactly. <laughs> you have yeah. to start somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> so, thanks so much. Thanks so much. Thank yeah. you. And we'll be in touch. See you next time. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, a few last notes. This show is now completely crowdfunded. So you can support us by going on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash data stories. And if you can spend a couple of minutes rating us on iTunes, that would be extremely helpful for the show. 
And here's also some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We're, of course, on Twitter at twitter.com slash data stories. We have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash data stories podcast, all in one word. And we also have a Slack channel uh, where you can chat with us directly. And to sign up, you can go to our homepage, datastory.es, and there is a button at the bottom of the page. And we also have an email newsletter. So if you want to get news directly into your inbox and be notified whenever we publish an episode, you can go to our homepage, datastory.es, and look for the link you find at the bottom in the footer. So one last thing we want to tell you is that we love to get in touch with our listeners, especially if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or amazing people you want us to invite or even projects you want us to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And don't hesitate to get in touch with us. It's always a great thing for to hear from you. So see you next time. And thanks for listening to Data Stories.